we're going to transition into the Word of God, you're going to need your physical Bibles. You, if you could also take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, we can begin. We are in part 78 of our series called Being Jesus, and I entitled this morning's message, The Example of a Servant King. And I want to give you the fill in the blank right in front of you, because Jesus is about to walk out a parable. He's about to do a live demonstration of an incredibly powerful spiritual concept. But in doing that, he says at the end, I'm giving you an example. I want you guys to role model me. I want you to do what I do. Therefore, the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The church, that's with a capital C, that means all believers, time-wide, worldwide. The church must represent the heart and life of Jesus. Now, I understand I gave you a little baby blank, and you're going to have heart and life all in there, right? you got to stack them. All right, that was my fault. Sorry about that. Uh, the church must represent the heart and life of Jesus. It means that we need to do it with the right attitude for the right motivations, but we need to do the right things. If we only have good things, then we're merely nice people. If we only have good hearts, we only have good intentions, and we're not accomplishing anything. Therefore, as the church, we must, must both watch why we're doing things and making sure we're doing things. One of the things I want to absolutely uh, motivate our church to do is to be involved in the life of the church and in the life of the community outside. This is something that we are going to be bringing to you in coming months about uh, the renewed uh, strategy of how we want to reach our community as Bridgeway Christian Church. And it's, exci- it's exciting, I'll just tell you that. And as we're doing that, we're talking about being involved, making sure that you are an active member in the kingdom of God. Whether or not that's inside the walls or outside the walls ultimately isn't going to matter. But we've got to be living like Jesus. The, the purpose of the series, being Jesus, is to live like Christ. Not merely to think things about Christ, but live like Christ. So that's kind of what he is getting to today. All right, we are going to be in John chapter 13. Would you turn there with me? If you need a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. It's page 900 in that Bible. John chapter 13, verse 1. The majority of our series seems or at least feels like it's been dominated by the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? They seem to be doing all the talking and the guiding, and, and a lot of that is because John is all over the place. I mean, he's kind of inserting here and then doing a one-off story here, and, and he kind of puts a little emphasis here, and well, now we are heading rapidly into a huge chunk of the book and gospel of John. As a matter of fact, we are now in the story of Jesus the night before the day of his crucifixion. We are now at the Last Supper. We've been going through this series for a while, and we are now at this place where things are beginning to wrap up, and he is so rapidly heading to the cross. But it's right here that John camps. That John says, hold on, hold on, now that I'm looking back on it, I had no idea how powerful that moment was. I didn't know that we were right on the edge, that we were in the evening before he leaves us. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that while we're sitting at the Last Supper, while we're screwing around and laughing and joking, I, I had no idea 
how intense that moment was going to be. And now that I'm looking back, I want you to know. I want to write down everything that I can remember. I want to talk about our conversations. I want to tell you how he prayed for us. I want I want to tell you how he loved us. I want to tell you how he demonstrated things for us. And so chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John are all the same conversation. It begins at the Last Supper. It will end on their way. A lot of the talk happens while they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be betrayed by Judas and he's going to end up in chains. But in this time, John says, all right, stop everything. This was my Lord and this is what he did and this is what he told me. So let's pick it up right there, all right? All right, John chapter 13, verse 1, page 900. Now, uh, I may well have this out of order chronologically because, as I said, John is hard to follow. It is possible, many scholars believe, that the washing of the disciples' feet that we're about to study was in reaction to a conversation that we're actually going to study later in the series. I think it would probably be better to move that back Because I do think this situation was because of that. What was that situation? It's believed by most commentators and scholars that as they were walking into the Last Supper room, they were having a debate about which one of them was the greatest. Now, you can imagine that if you're walking in with Jesus and, and he's probably already in there or maybe he's trailing a little bit behind and, and you hear all this conversation of going, dude, there's no way you're better than me. That's ridiculous. You realize every time I go in to heal, that's like, bam, suddenly somebody's healed. You, dude, it's like a five minute delay. What is wrong with you? And then the other guys are like, man, did you see what? I'm just like, demon, get out. He's like, and it flies out and I'm, and I'm all, you know, big and bad. And they're arguing about, you know, when I preach, everybody gets saved. When you preach, it's like only the, the little people get saved. You know, it's, I mean, they're having this dumb debate about who's more awesome. And they're hanging out with Jesus. And then he washes their feet. How embarrassing is that? Because it's, he's looking and he's going, guys, that's not how we do it. And he flips the entire thing on its head. And he does it like this. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, remember the last supper that Jesus was going to eat was going to be a Passover feast. We know it as the last supper, but ultimately it was a Passover meal. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come or His time had been fulfilled. He knew he was heading towards what he had come to do. He realized it was time to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means to fulfillment, to perfection, to maturity. Okay, let me ask you a question. How much did Jesus know about the plans of God? You're like, well, it's God. I mean, come on. He probably knew everything. All right. When did he know that? Did he know that as an embryo? So there he is in Mary's womb. And he's like, I can't wait for the cross. Right. And he doesn't even have hands yet. And he's like at little flippers. And he's like, I am on my way. Okay. Is that what happened? Probably not. So when did he know it? We know that it probably as a six year old, he probably knew what six year olds know. 
Because the Bible says he grew in stature and in wisdom. How in the world are you going to grow in wisdom if you already know everything? And it seems, and, and this is my viewpoint on what happened when Jesus incarnated or God became humanity and dwelt among us, is that he took that on. He didn't get rid of being God, but he added in humanity. But in doing so, he came here in a different form than he was there. What do I mean? It's that he set aside, in my opinion, his superpowers. Now, now he could have taken them back at any moment, but I believe that he blindfolded himself. So he, he shut down the omniscience of all knowing. Could he have taken his blindfold off? Absolutely. He could have. Could he have hulked out and became omnipotent again? Yes, of course he could. But he chose to contain all that, shut all that down, and I believe he did so for us. I believe that he relied solely on the direction of the Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's all we got. We are not omniscient. We're never going to be omniscient. We're not omnipotent. We'll never be omnipotent. He lived a life and said, this is what it would look like if you were all in. I'm demonstrating, he's saying, that you can live a life like I live a life because I'm relying on the downloads of the Father. I'm relying on the Holy Spirit's power, just like you. However, we do know that Jesus Christ was sinless. There was no blockade. There was no jammed up system. There was no, you know, locked up conduit. It was very pure coming through Jesus. But I don't believe that he was operating in his own deity at that moment. And so because of that, I believe that the father downloaded progressively to him the insights of what he needed to know at the time. By this time, he is now 33 years old. I believe by the time he hit 30, it's probably sometime in his 20s, he knew all about why he was here. By the time he hits 30, he's going, I'm going public. And he goes in this public ministry and he's carrying out everything for the father. He knew he had come to die. He knew that he came to save the world from its sin. He knew that he came to destroy the works of the devil. He knew all of that. And now here we are after three years of ministry. He knows because the father had very clearly given to him directives. He is right on the way to the cross. So having known all that now. He makes sure that he's tightening up everything, finishing everything, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and getting it prepared. That's what we have here. So have, how, knowing where he's going to head, how does he still have joy? How does he still have ability to love on other people? How does he still have the ability to be in present in the moment when you know you're about to head towards the most horrific situation the next day? If I was to tell you that tomorrow... You are going to be uh, um, killed in, uh, you know, let's say, uh, capital punishment. Let's say tomorrow was your day to die. Would you be present in conversations and hanging out with me? Probably not. You're probably thinking about what's going on tomorrow. It's very hard to be in there, much less worry about other people. But this is Jesus we're talking about. The same man who, even while he's on the cross, getting nailed there, is worried about the people nailing him there. You understand? I mean, he's so present. How can he have that type of perspective? Well, actually, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, 
It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was it? He knew where he was headed. Ultimately, therefore, he could handle today. He looked right through the cross into the joy set before him and said, I can do this. In the same way, we have that perspective. You know where you're headed. If you are a child of God, you are headed towards glory. Therefore, you can handle today. Therefore, you can handle the frustrations and the hurts and the pains and the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations. Why? Because it is only momentary. You will be going right through that and you know that the much longer period, the infinitely longer period is glorious and joyful. So we can handle today because we got a great tomorrow. Hmm. During supper, verse 2, meaning it had already begun, that's intriguing. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God in heaven and was going back to God to his rightful place in heaven. Let's talk about that. After Satan had put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, hold up, I thought we already talked about this. I thought we determined that Judas convinced Judas to betray Jesus. What happened there? Is it, is it Satan or is it Judas? Yes, it certainly is. Right? Well, why? Because, do you realize the Bible says, I do not want you to be unaware of the devil's schemes. Do you realize that? And you go, well, come on, Lance. He's an evil genius. He's more brilliant than all of us put together. You're absolutely correct. So how in the world are we going to know his schemes? How are we going to know his traps? How are we not going to fall into what he does? If he's that brilliant, how are we ever going to get a shot? Well, I think that there's two reasons. Number one, because God keeps exposing his schemes. God keeps going, there's a trap, there's a trap, right? And it's hard to lay a trap when there's a big neon sign over it going, trap, right here, right? So God's constantly exposing it so you won't walk into it. But the other reason is because as brilliant as Satan is, as creative as Satan can be, he doesn't really need to be. Because what worked the first time is pretty much worked every time. His plans and schemes have been rather consistent since day one because it works. So what are his plans and schemes? Well, a lot was done and written about in the Garden of Eden. Here's what I need you to understand about the devil's schemes. Satan is an instigator. Do you know what instigator means? Satan gets the ball rolling. Satan starts the snowball effect. He gets it rolling down the hill. And what he does is he just wants to initiate something. But whether or not it takes hold depends on the quality of the heart. Here's kind of how it works. Satan's favorite plans to instigate are causing questions and doubts and 
The spirit of offense. All right. When I talk about the spirit of offense, I'm talking about something that can destroy a church. God does mighty things through a unified church. God does less mighty things through a disunified church. So what does Satan want? He wants to disunify us. How's he going to do that? Well, one of the ways is through the spirit of offense. When I say the spirit of offense, I don't mean that there's some little cherub demon thing with an arrow that says, you know, offense across his chest and he's shooting little arrows at you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that's a cooler way of saying it than the attitude of offense or whatever you want to call it. But here's what the attitude of offense or the spirit of offense is. Someone disrespects you or someone hurts you and an arrow is shot right into your heart with poison. Here's how it usually goes. This is Satan's groove. He'll go in and go, oh, no, did you hear what they just said? Oh, my gosh, how could they say that about you? That's not true, right? No, 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 no. Oh, you know what? I bet you that's not all they think. They only said that. What else do they think? I mean, there's something that's under that, right? I mean, they, when they were like thinking things about you and saying, oh, you were probably like this. Man, what do they really think? Because they never say what they really think. Oh, well, hold on a second. They're going to disrespect you. Haven't you been super nice to them? I mean, come on. You're just you're trying to mind your own business and they're out talking about you behind your back. Really? Okay, no, no, no. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. All I'm trying to say is, you know, man, how can they act like that? Dude, don't you understand that you're out there and trying to be nice to everybody? And how dare they? Okay, anyway, I don't care what you want to do with that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Do you understand how that works? Because this is what it said happened in the garden. Eve is walking around and Satan comes up like a snake. Yeah? And he's like, hey, hey, real quick. I got a question for you. So what's with that whole tree thing? God's like, don't touch it, right? Or something like that. And she's like, no, God didn't say don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. She's like, stupid snake. And he's like, oh, that's right. That's right. Why, why can't you eat it? What's up with that? Well, I don't know. Something like these rules and it's like, oh, it'll hurt us. And I don't know, whatever. I, we're probably going to die. You're going to die. Did he say that? Yeah, he did say that. Do you really think you're going to die? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if God says it, yeah, probably. Real quick. I'm not, I'm not saying for sure, but I don't think you're going to die. As a matter of fact, here's the funny thing about it. I'm wondering, is this like a competition thing where God's like, don't eat the fruit because then it's going to cause me problems because I want all the control? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a snake. I'm moving my hands, <laughs> right? Because I didn't get cursed yet, so I still have hands, right? Uh, you know what I'm saying? And so all he's doing is causing doubt and questions. And, and it's almost like the arrow with poison goes boom right into the heart. And then here's what I believe. If you are a Christian, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I believe immediately after an arrow with poison goes in your heart, the Holy Spirit is like, oh, warning, warning. He starts shoving it back out. Like we got to get that thing out of us, man. This does not belong here. That is garbage. And what we end up doing is hanging on and go, hold on a second. Holy Spirit, hold on, hold on. That's a good point. They are rude. That is a good point. You know what? They've done this to me before. And we start shoving it back in. And the Holy Spirit's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want that. Man, that's yucky stuff coming in here. We don't want any of that garbage. Get that thing out of here. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Holy Spirit, back off for a second. I think, they were, I think he's right. We start nursing that and allowing that poison to just go all the way throughout our system. He's an instigator. So who was it 
Satan or Judas? Yes. All Satan had to do was come up and go, hey, Judas, you know he's not the Messiah. Dude, you, you've gotten some cash from him, but that guy's on his way out. You might want to cash in on the end. That's all I'm telling you. You know, I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying it's an awesome opportunity. Whatever you want to do with that, that's your business. And Judas went with it, right? All right, let's keep moving forward. It says that Jesus had come from God and was going back to God. One of the most beautiful passages about that is in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be hung on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what did he do? He was incredibly glorious, beautiful, magnificent, all-powerful. And he then cloaked that, added on humanity, came down here, appeared as a servant, and then when he died, resurrected, and ascended to the Father, boom, he was able to hulk back out and become who he is. And there he is glorious once again. We just need to know who Jesus is. That's who we serve. That Jesus, verse 4, rose from supper. Again, odd timing. He laid aside his outer heavier cloak type garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist like ready for business. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let's stop real quick. How much of that dirt, if you have the towel wrapped around you, is going to get on you? Because... You're the one with the water. You're the one now touching all the mud and all the dirt. But the towel is on you. So isn't it going to soak through the towel and get on you? I mean, it seems like Jesus was in pretty close proximity to all the dirt. seems like it got all over him. Notice it didn't get in him. It just got all over him. There's a powerful truth there about the cross. He came to Simon Peter. Now, he's already washed a couple of the other guys, and everyone's kind of incredulous, not even getting it. This is messed up. They don't understand why he's doing this. This is a complete violation of normal custom. What in the world is he doing? Well, he finally gets to the loudmouth. Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, what, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, that's a terrible idea. What are you thinking? You've got us all uncomfortable because this is not how it goes. That is a, a mild rebuke of the Lord. Do you understand that even though he it comes from a good heart where he's going, no, 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 you're the important one. I'm not the important one. Do you still realize he's still correcting Jesus? Isn't that what we do in our prayers? Even if we have really good hearts, we're still telling the Lord what to do as if he doesn't know. He's like, you know what? Let me do my job. I know what I'm doing. So Peter tries to rebuke him. So Jesus rebukes him back. That happens quite a bit. Verse seven. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. In other words, Peter, you're clueless. Keep it quiet for a moment. I got to get through what I'm doing and then I'll explain myself. What about foot washing? It's about what you think. Let me give you a little bit of background on ancient 
Middle Eastern process. It would work like this. If you're at home in your own house, almost nobody's washing anybody's feet. You wash your own feet. If you are not wealthy, there's no point in even washing your feet. Why? Because your house has just as much dirt at the bottom of it than outside. There's no point in washing your feet and then stepping on your own dirt floor. But if you're more wealthy and you have rugs down or you have uh, flooring or things like that, you don't want to drag the mud from outside. None of the roads are paved. In the summertime, it's super dry and dusty. It's caked with dust. When it's raining, oh, no, now you got mud everywhere, and you don't want to carry that inside the house. So you would position, if you were wealthy enough, a slave at the door. Now, at a feast, you would normally only have a feast at somebody's house that had a little bit more money. It was a great honor for the host to be able to put a slave at the door. So they would do the nasty job of washing all the feet of the people that were coming in. They'd have a towel and a wash basin. They'd wash your feet and you could go into your meal. That was considered an honor. Now, rarely as an act of honor, there would be some one-off issues. Sometimes a host, if he had a super important guest, maybe would wash his feet. Uh, sometimes a wife would wash her husband's feet as a sign of respect. Sometimes, very rarely, the children would wash the feet of their parents who were older in life out of respect. But these are all very rare. The main thing is you got to be pretty wealthy and you have a slave do it because it's gross. All right. But if he's supposed to be at the door, the point is to wash their feet before they track it in anywhere. Jesus is doing it in the middle of the supper. So obviously it's not for any cleaning reasons. They've already drug all their dirt everywhere, right? So that, that's not his point. His point is something deeper. There's a big spiritual lesson he's about to give. And what is it? It's a lesson on humility. It's a lesson on servanthood. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. A better translation is you shall not know never. That's rather strong. Once again, you have Peter rebuking Jesus. Lord, you're not doing this. Never know. Okay, why is he doing that? Because he's going, God, this isn't how it's supposed to go. You're doing it wrong. Stop doing that. You're more important than me. I'm the lesser guy. This is uncomfortable. This is a bad idea. Stop doing it. And then Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Uh Oh, that's a warning. If I don't wash you, you ain't even with me. So Simon Peter, being Mr. Extreme, says, Lord, then not my feet also, but also my hands and my head and my he's like, oh, Peter, man, dude, would you just mellow out? Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed, which I appreciate you doing, Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash again. That's a once and for all thing, he said, except for his feet. But he is completely clean. That's the extent of the cross. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's Judas Iscariot who's in the room. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, this is the big message. This is the whole point of why Jesus did that was these phrases right here. What does it mean? Does it mean, as some commentators say, this means that unless you are baptized in water, you are not saved? 
Because that is a viewpoint that has been used throughout history to explain that unless I wash you, meaning in physical water, you do not have entrance into the kingdom of God. Well, that's been taught a lot. Is it as the Roman Catholics teach that after the infant baptism of washing the babies with water, they are saved at the water place and now only need penance afterwards? Is that what it means? I disagree with both those views. I don't think that they're biblical. Here's what I believe that it's saying. Jesus was about to talk about a relationship connection, a sanctification, making you more like Jesus, a process of purification in your walk through this life. He was about to make a really great point about remaining connected to him when Peter sidetracks the conversation. Peter starts saying, I don't want you to wash me. Jesus takes that moment to step back and says, hold on. If we're talking about washing, you need to know this, kid. If I'm not the one that cleanses your soul, you're not cleansed at all. You understand what I mean? That's what I think Jesus' point was. If you don't allow my forgiveness, if you think that you're going to cut it, if you think you can wash yourself, if you think that you can save yourself, we're not even connected. I have to wash you. Now, Peter, you are washed. You are clean. Can I get to my point, please? My point is, what do we do with all the sin stuff after that? Right? Because we all know we're still jokers. We all know we're walking through a sin-stained world. Sometimes we ourselves are sitting down and playing in the mud and flinging it in the air. Right? I mean, what do you do with Christians who are still in sin, which is all of us? The Bible says if you say that you do not have sin in your life, you're a liar. So you got sin in your life. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, actually, there's a bunch of passages about that. It says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's say that's the washing of the whole body. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want a little bit more? Sure. First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's obviously our goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What's the point? Kids, you're still going to mess up. I need you to go through a process that is about temporary restoration of our relationship. In other words... I'm not just going to let your sin go and pretend like it's not a big deal. Yes, I've cleansed you. Yes, I. the Bible says in Hebrews that he remembers your sins no more. When you are cleansed, he takes the code that stood against you, that condemned you. It says he nailed that to the cross. That means he took your sins, past, present, and future. So in your standing before God, you are cleansed, you are forgiven, you are walking in grace. It says that his grace is sufficient. When Jesus died on the cross, he said it is finished. That means it is finished. There we go. Therefore, you are in right standing with God. You are in union with Christ. Therefore, you are saved. But what about all the stuff we're still doing? What about all the hurt we're doing with everybody else? Is our good heavenly father just going to go, ah, whatever. That's sin. I already covered that stuff. That's cool. Or is our heavenly father going to go, hey, kid, 
practically you're messing things up and I'm not okay with that. So we're going to do a little correction time here. We're going to, we're going to fix some stuff. We're going to do a little discipline. All right. And I'm going to be communicating with you and saying, kid, you're putting up a wall between us. Now you can't even hear me anymore. What are you doing? Stop. We're not doing that. Let me give you a a real life example. Let's say I had a prayer request and I said, here's what I want everyone to do. I want everyone to come up to the microphone and pray out loud with passion over this person. There's a whole bunch of you that would say, no, that's all right, Pastor Lance. I'm going to step out. And you're not doing it because you're afraid of public speaking. You're doing it because you don't think that you have the right because you have all this garbage going on in your life. Who put that wall there? Did God? Not that one. You put that wall there. You threw up this whole wall and said, no, 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 I'm out. I got garbage. Jesus is going, hold on. So how do we correct that? How do we fix that? Because I'm not just going to sit back and go, you're right. You're an idiot. As a good dad, he's going to go, okay, so how are we going to get that dirt off you? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of messed up. What do I need to do? Well, first of all, I need you to own it and quit trying to hide it and quit trying to block it and quit trying to run away from it and quit trying to say it's not real. It is real. So can you just open up and admit it? All right, Lord, I totally messed up. Awesome. Let's go forward. Let, you know, that's obviously what I'm here for. And he starts to wash your feet and clean you up and say, listen, I got love and grace and acceptance. Let's do this. We can handle it. Now, what's funny is a lot of that gets pretty stuck on there. And he tries to wash our feet. And we're like, uh, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm going I'm to go out and play in the mud again. So there's really no point in you cleaning up my feet. You understand that? What the hope is. Is that when you come to God and he sits down in the dirt and begins to wash your feet off, that his kindness and love leads you towards repentance. That when your dad demonstrates his incredible love and grace and acceptance, then it would actually change your heart and you would actually want to do that less. That's how it's supposed to go. Is it always working with us? Well, God's patient. This is called the sanctification process, the process by which he's cleaning us up practically on the outside. The way in which Jesus is making us more and more into his image, that is a process. It will continue on as long as we are here, as long as we are in a sin-filled world, until we get to there where there is no more sin. As long as we are still broken and hurting other people, this is a process. And he keeps cleaning us up. And you go, well, what do I need to do? You need to talk to him about it. That's what you need to do. God, I have sin in my life and actually I don't want to get rid of it. That's why it's there. Oh, well, that is a problem. I know. That's why I'm talking about it. All right. So what are we going to do? I don't know. I need your help. Holy Spirit, you got to give me some empowerment. All right. Here we go. You going to take that door out? Nope, not today. (laughs) All right. And and, and then he walks us through this. Sometimes we get so stuck in places that he has to bring in discipline to get us out. And that's where he's like, oh, no, I broke your legs. (laughs) Oh, look, you're not running away anymore. That's funny. Oh, now we're sitting in it. Let's figure it out. Right. I mean, he's brilliant. Yeah. All right. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet, which probably took some time. He put on his outer garments and resumed his place back around the table, I would assume. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Which is kind of funny because he already said, you don't understand. Anyway, verse 13, he said, you call me teacher like rabbi. You call me Lord, which means master. And you're right, for so I am. 
you're right, I am more important than you guys, he said. I'm the infinite one, I'm the great one. You're absolutely right. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, the humble act of a servant, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Kids, he said, listen up, this is deep. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, who do you think you are? If you know these things, great. But blessed are you if you do these things. What's his point? His point is, he's God. He's glorious. And he took the role of a servant. So why do you have a problem with that? Oh, because you're a big deal. Are you now? You're a big deal? Oh, because you run a Fortune 500 company? Let me explain my biblical perspective on all this. I don't care who you are. If you're not Jesus, walking on water and dying for the sins of the world, I'm not impressed by you. I don't care how much money you have. It's not a big deal to me. I don't care how powerful and influential you are. That does not move me. Why? Because my standard is Jesus. And you're really below that. Therefore, I consider all of us equals. And if we're all equals, then everything is in our job description. There's nothing underneath us. So, if a little baby spits up in the hallway and it's not your baby, and that mom is scrambled and busy, guess who's cleaning up the spit up? That would be anyone here. Oh, well, you know, I don't really do that. It's not really my kid. Are you a child of God? Are you a believer? If you are, you're on. That's it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter who the world tells you you are. I'm telling you who you are because Jesus tells you who you are. And who you are is a servant. The first level of humility is realizing you're not a big deal in comparison to Jesus. The next level of humility is to realize because of Jesus, you actually are a big deal. You just can't take advantage of it. Does that make sense? So wherever you're at in that process, the point is we serve one another. We love on one another. We take care of each other. We involve ourselves in each other's lives. This is where it becomes very, very practical. Are you engaged in serving the church? Are you engaged in serving your community? Is there portions of your life that are significantly used by which to make other people's lives easier and better? Are you out there saying, let me take care of that for you? Are you saying, let me sign up to make sure that you're all right? The Bible says that we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. The Bible says that we should bear one another's burdens. The Bible says that it's not all about us and our agenda, but we should consider others greater than ourselves. That means when you look around, everyone around you in this room, beyond this room, their plans matter more than your plans are we doing that what i find fascinating is how jesus served he had no fear no insecurity no competition 
no nervousness that the minute he starts washing the disciples feet, they're going to suddenly get it in their head that they're the big dogs and that he's just a grunt. He had no fear on what they were going to think of him. He didn't try to protect his reputation. Why? Because he was completely solid in his identity. He knows who he is. He didn't have to worry about that. I know who I am. I know who my father is. I know what I do and I know how I'm gifted. I know my value. Therefore, I can serve anybody and it doesn't matter to me. Oh, did you think that I'm less than you? Who cares? (laughs) You don't even know what you're talking about anyway. If our king would bow down and humble himself to serve his enemies, do you realize that he washed the feet of Judas? Who that night already had a plan. It's already in his heart. And he's going to kill his Messiah. If that's the case, why are we so hung up with pride? Shouldn't we look at other people and go, wow, how can I help you out? What can I do for you? Can I watch your kids? Can I love on you? You probably got important stuff to do. You probably got some things that you need to be freed of. Man, as a single mom, you probably have a lot of responsibilities. How can I take care of you? Oh, and over here, you're going through some financial troubles. Well, let me see if there's any way that I can somehow bless you or benefit you. Because honestly, God gave me this money and somehow I'm supposed to get some of it to you. When does that become who we are? When does it become that we look out into the community and we start serving them to such a degree that the church isn't known for hate, it's known for love. It's known for service. It's known for, look at these transformed people. This guy and this girl who are the CEOs of this company are coming over and trying to mow my lawn. Why are they mowing my lawn? Oh, because my husband is in traction because he broke his back and they found out about that and our house is totally overgrown. And now we got these incredibly powerful people coming over and saying, hey, can I get your lawn for you? That's Christianity. Are we doing any of that? I'll tell you what we are going to be doing moving forward as a church is a lot more of that. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating to us what it means to not allow the beauty and greatness that you are hinder you from becoming a servant. God, I pray that you would release us from all the insecurity that stops us from serving, from all the pride, from all the garbage, from all the baggage. God, would you just allow us to see from your perspective, through your eyes, that we might be able to love on everybody, that we actually think they are valuable, they are important, that we're not faking it, that it's not a false humility, it's actually thinking less about ourselves. More about other people being almost dominated by the idea that Jesus, you've given us everything to love on them. And so God, allow us to know what it means to serve one another, to be involved, to be engaged, to be interdependent, to be able to do all the things necessary so that others may thrive and do their ministry rightly. God, give us dreams and desires in that way that you might be glorified. In this place, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Prayer team is up here. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time.